Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Just a comment. Maybe you're thinking about going somewhere this summer. Maybe you're wondering if you need to get boosted. Maybe you're wondering if your antibody level is any good. And over the last couple of weeks, I've been engaging in a little laboratory experiment of my own, which is to say, checking my antibody levels. Part one of that was the baseline antibody level. This was drawn, let's see, in uh, early June, which is eight months after my third uh, Pfizer uh, shot. That was my first booster. I decided to wait and see what my antibodies w- levels were doing. Uh, 64-year-old, reasonably healthy person, not on any drugs, with a mild tendency towards extra inflammation. So I thought maybe that would be helpful. Turns out the lab core test for the COVID antibody spike uh, protein, which was the only one I had, I did not have capsid protein antibody, which means I didn't get COVID over the last few years. I did, however, get three shots, and they did a pretty good job. I had a uh, antibody level of almost 3,000, and that eight months out. So I think uh, pretty good information uh, that we're protected. By the way, if you're wondering what a protective level is, it Of course, first depends on how you define protection. I'm going to define it as not getting sick and ending up in the hospital. Uh, But I can't guarantee that even a high neutralizing antibody level in my blood is going to mean that I can't get an infection in my nose and pass it around for a few days. So I'm still being very careful about masking, particularly indoors. And of course, as I work in a medical setting, that's merely, you know, merely prudent. However, What do you want? You want a level of at least 2,000. This according to Dori Shegrev, a PhD at Johns Hopkins Medicine in uh, Baltimore who studies transplant uh, patients. He's published several articles looking at correlation of neutralizing assays, which means they take the blood, they spin off the red blood cells and white blood cells, they take the serum and they apply it to a tissue culture that's been infected with COVID-19, and they see whether or not they can neutralize the COVID uh, virus. And he studied it against transplant uh, patients who have gone and gotten an antibody level. These levels are described as units per ml. It's not a titer, which is how we usually think of uh, antibody levels. So it's important that somebody did the research. Anyway, uh, Sergev's conclusion is that if you have uh, over a thousand units per ml, you're in good shape, not unless you have a high risk condition. If you have uh, 2,500, you're probably in excellent shape for not getting sick. But again, not getting sick doesn't mean not getting exposed and it doesn't mean not carrying the virus to others. So we need to keep that distinction because I'm hearing from a lot of my patients who are showing up with a positive test. Do I need to stay home? Do, why, do, why do I need to isolate? Well, you need to isolate because you need to be a good citizen. 
Now, we've been so focused on this that we have uh, something else to discuss at the top of the show. We have a real game changer in the fight against opiate addiction and opiate overdose that, in my opinion, just has not been getting enough attention. I attended a lecture a few months ago where I learned, among other things, that this agent, Suboxone, is really having its moment in terms of the treatment of both opiate withdrawal and opiate addiction. In just a moment, I'll tell you about some research that is being done in Canada uh, for people with opiate addiction disorder. But first, I want to tell you if you know a healthcare provider, uh, particularly a doctor who they may not have heard about this, and they may not realize, at least in the state of California, how easy it is to get the, uh, authorized to treat patients with Suboxone. It used to be extremely difficult. I looked into it initially when the drug came out, and it involved a fairly expensive training course that I would have to take, and just hours out of your day, it it didn't seem like, in my case, the... Uh, that it was going to be useful. If I was an emergency room doctor, I, of course, would have gone gone ahead, but this was different. However, there is an entity called the California Bridge Network, CA Bridge, and it is going, among other things, out to doctors, trying to get them to use the new quick start protocol that the state of California has allowed. This allows doctors to be able to prescribe to up to 30 patients a month, uh, this agent. And Suboxone is a real game changer. It People think of it as being just an oral form of morphine, but it's really something uh, very, very different from that. So I want to start out with talking about opiate addiction and opiate withdrawal. Now, obviously, opiates are used for pain, and they also have a euphoric effect. And the continued use of this results in a change in the body's sensory threshold, uh, such that one becomes, one needs higher and higher doses of receptor or, or drug to stimulate the receptors on the surface of the cells that you're targeting in the brain. But part of this lecture really reframed opiate withdrawal for me. Anyone who's ever been through it will tell you that opiate withdrawal is incredibly unpleasant. But researchers recently have put EEG machines on people who are in opiate withdrawal. And what they see surprised me they see an EEG pattern that is consistent with seizure activity. So seizures are repetitive, large uh, spikes in parts of the brain that are all firing simultaneously. In the case of these pain seizures that characterize opiate withdrawal pattern, they're occurring in the thalamus and the other pain modulating parts of the brain. What they found in their, in, what these researchers found in their research was when they gave buprenorphine, which is uh, what Suboxone is actually, it's a morphine-like drug. They were giving it as a sublingual film under the tongue. And they saw that the EEG 
went, uh, that seizures stopped as the drug uh, took hold. Now, the other symptoms of opiate withdrawal are severe cramps, insomnia, diarrhea, sweating, hair standing on end, vomiting, irritability, increased blood pressure, and increased heart rate. It isn't going to kill you, but it is going to make you wish you were dead. The presenter said one of the best ways to basically identify a person who is at risk for opiate withdrawal is simply to say, do you feel sick from not using? If the answer is yes, this is a, this person is a candidate for therapy. So ongoing primary care is the goal of the new approach, having uh, a person identified perhaps in the emergency room, maybe when they're brought in uh, after an overdose, but then hooking them up with a doctor who can prescribe this agent. This agent is oral. It's basically the buprenorphine with naloxone attached to it. It uh, The reason that that's important is uh, because the buprenorphine is an opiate partial agonist, partial antagonist. And so the cool thing about this is that it's enough of a stimulator to the receptor that it's going to keep people out of withdrawal. But you can't, it, but as you take more and more of it, it becomes more of a blocker. And so at high doses or when it's given, uh, if you, it, at high doses, it has no respiratory depression. So even if you gave a large amount of it intravenously by crushing up, uh, by you know crushing it up, you wouldn't stop your breathing. You wouldn't get the end stage of opiate overdose, which is loss of spontaneous respiration. The bu- the subaxone has had naloxone added to it. So now what you're dealing with is an oral agent that if you were to uh, naloxone, by the way, is not active orally. It's destroyed in the stomach. But were you to crush it up? and shoot the pill, something that has been done for many years by uh, the addicted with with uh, pharmaceutical agents that are in a pill form. They'll crush it and shoot it. And I have a terrible anecdote about that, which I won't share with you, except to say that, you know, don't scrape, don't scrape drugs off the bathroom floor and then inject them into your arm. It's a bad idea. You'll probably get a nasty infection. The cool thing here is essentially we have an oral agent that cannot be misused. It can't be diverted. It doesn't have a street value. And it keeps you out of withdrawal. So this is proving to be a major, major game changer, but it's not getting the traction it needs. Describing how it's used in the emergency room, the speaker said that you give about eight milligrams of the agent, and then you wait five minutes and then see if they still, if they feel normal yet. If they don't, you give them another dose. Uh, It can be used in the emergency room when someone comes in kind of comatose to differentiate alcohol withdrawal uh, or meth or meth plus fentanyl withdrawal, which apparently in the Central Valley has become a major, major issue. The other thing about this is that it can be used as a substitute for some of the more addictive opiates. So it can be used, for example, as an injection 
to treat pain. And there are also some patches coming out that can be used as primary pain control. So you can bring the person off of the morphine, use this instead, and they can take high doses to control their pain without us worrying that they're going to stop breathing. This could be a major, major benefit when we're dealing with cancer pain. The physiological dependence ends. And when if a person is, has short-term pain, you can taper the drug much more easily. So this is uh, also an extraordinarily useful thing. Now, I mentioned something about methamphetamine being mixed with fentanyl. Uh, at this particular situation in our society, you don't know what drug you are taking when you buy something. You just don't know. I'm a little worried about my patients who are getting things from, you know, sleeping medications from the quote-unquote Canadian pharmacy. I'm wondering if it's going to sneak into that. It is uh, a real concern. But right now, what we're, we're mainly seeing fentanyl uh, contamination or cross-contamination is in the street drug world. But it is a uh, significant issue. Another thing I learned at this is uh, bupropion is a, uh, wellbutrin, which is bupropion, is a agent that is used for depression. And overdose of this is actually uh, quite dangerous for children. So this is true of all medications, of course. But uh, this particular antidepressant if you have grandkids coming over or something like that and you're taking it, you really need to be sure to keep it out of sight and, and more importantly, out of reach. You're listening to K-Squid 90.7 FM. That's KSQD. And you can reach me by phone at 831-900-5773. That's 900-K-Squid. Or you can send an email to onair at ksqd.org. And this study, following up from uh, what I was just talking about, uh, rather than using methadone, this this research entity in Canada had two groups that were all in their first week of trying to come off of, uh, well, detox, basically, trying to come off of uh, heroin or, you know, hydrocodone or oxycodone addiction, and they were given Suboxone to take home. It was a day program, so it would come during the day to uh, classes and for therapy, but then at home they didn't need close supervision because they couldn't really hurt themselves with it. But because it was something that they could do without checking themselves into a day facility, it was much more successful. They had about 270 uh, participants in this study, and they followed them up over 24 weeks and essentially found not only was it safe, but it actually had a much higher uh, continuance rate and a much lower uh, fall-off rate in terms of compliance than the methadone group because it was private and less hassle. And, of course, walking down, going to a methadone clinic can be incredibly stigmatizing, particularly if you live in a small town. I was looking forward to uh, talking about something else besides COVID-19 for a long time. I felt like we were finally turning the corner, and I got my wish. 
Now the hot topic is long COVID. Emerging information suggests that a significant number of uh, people who get COVID don't get entirely well. There's a huge raft of different issues that are emerging as persistent sticky problems in people post-COVID. Clearly, it's multiple different entities. Much of it will hinge on the individual vulnerabilities of the people infected, how severe their lung infection, whether they got clotting, whether they got fibrosis. Some of them um, may have genetics in their heart or their lung or their brain or elsewhere that set them up for prolonged inflammation somewhere. And this uh, study I'm about to talk about, it recent initiative in brain research illustrates where we are at the moment. We're still trying to define the problem in the first place. Yes, inflammation and autoimmune. You'll hear these words quite a lot. Researchers at the University of California, San Diego, are conducting a longitudinal track study. Uh, This was started uh, in October of 2020, and they've just published their first results about six months after they closed the study in October of 2021. They did a neurological visit, cognitive assessment, and a brain scan initially, and then every few months they repeated this and monitored people. And they were just looking at neurological disease, and they found at the time of the first visit about 90% of people had fatigue and 80% had headaches, but many complained of memory impairment, insomnia, decreased concentration. And at the six months follow-up, only about a third of the patients had recovered at their six-month follow-up, and the most prevalent symptoms left over were memory impairment and impaired concentration. I look at that and I think brain inflammation. But this is something new. Researchers found a novel phenotype within the cohort. 7% of the participants had a syndrome previously undescribed in the medical literature, a kind of syndrome as a set of symptoms. And these were cognitive deficits, like already described, but tremor and difficulty balancing. And they're calling this post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 infection. I'm wondering if there is also a uh, a connection here with POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which has also been showing up as part of the long COVID package. That is effectively nerve damage in the autonomic nervous system. I think of it just as the automatic nervous system, the thing that takes care of your heartbeat and your blood pressure and all the other stuff that you're too busy um, on social media to deal with. So all of these folks were neurologically normal before their COVID. And the researchers speculated that perhaps the infection triggered an inflammatory autoimmune response in the brain. There's quite a lot of possibility to the idea that there is a sort of phenotype of inflammation that gets triggered by COVID that persists. For one thing, the ACE receptor is present in numerous cell types in the body. We're really trying to define the conditions that exist under the umbrella of long COVID. They're hard at work repurposing existing drugs. But when you look at the organ systems affected here, the ACE2 receptor, which is basically the gate that the virus uses to get in to cells, 
You've got it in the oral and nasal passageways, of course, in the lungs, but also the heart, the GI tract, liver, kidney, spleen, brain, all of the arteries and veins, and sometimes combinations of these become damaged in the uh, disease. As we're simultaneously trying to characterize it and understand it, scientists are hard at work repurposing existing drugs and treatment with some promising initial results. One in in particular appealed to me, and this was uh, about IV vitamin C. Vitamin C has been making a comeback as a treatment for fatigue in cancer patients, and this article cited a review series that I found fascinating. I've always thought of vitamin C in IV form as being something to be given during chemotherapy to help with the effectiveness of chemotherapy. But these studies, while also testing that, uh, actually quite hard to prove hypothesis, we're also looking at endpoints of fatigue. And when you look at that data, it's pretty remarkable to see how many studies had positive results. These are all placebo trials, which were using people with various types of cancers and giving them high doses of vitamin C several times a week for usually around a month and showing extraordinary improvements in fatigue, cognitive function, and insomnia. There's currently a long COVID research project that's been put together uh, called Lovit, L-O-V-I-T hyphen COVID, and it's an ongoing clinical trial. If you have long COVID and haven't been able to get into one of the clinics, you might think about going to the NIH clinical trials page and looking this up and seeing if you can get enrolled in a study. But on the other hand, you may just want to think about getting it locally because vitamin C infusions are widely available at uh, alternative medicine offices. And having looked at this research, I'm you know, quite uh, enthused about possibly brushing up my IV skills, depending upon what level of interest there is in the community. But we're talking about doses of around one to three grams per kilogram of body weight. That's, you know, a lot maybe as much as 300 grams of uh, vitamin C given intravenously for several for several weeks and the better the bigger the dose is the better the effect and none of these showed any adverse uh, problems with the effect and these were big well controlled studies so if someone's interested in uh, the reference uh, they can go ahead and e- email me either now or a little bit later, and I will give that to you, but I'm very intrigued. Some of the other things that are being looked at, uh, quite interesting, uh, antihistamines, over-the-counter antihistamines, mixing both the nasal antihistamine and the gut antihistamine. The gut antihistamines are things like Tagamet and Zantac, and these agents block H2 receptors, which are what stimulates the release of stomach acid. The H1 receptors, on the other hand, are what make you sneeze and make your nose run. So you have to hit both types of receptors in order to get a body-wide effect. But there are some studies that show that this actually 
does benefit, and one study at least that I don't think is replicated that suggests it might even have an anti-infective effect. Another study showed that antidepressants used in long COVID caused a result in peripheral inflammatory markers, which are clearly driving some of this long COVID. Uh, There's some interesting studies looking at hyperbaric oxygen, Montelukast, which is singular, a widely available anti-allergy drug again, uh, to see if it can help prevent the lung fibrosis, which is a characteristic of long COVID when it affects the lungs. Uh, Nicotinamide riboside, which is a dietary supplement that's been widely promoted for energy, uh, has been shown in at least one study to improve the cognitive symptoms and fatigue again through a mechanism that appears to be primarily anti-inflammatory. There's a monoclonal antibody that's been shown to be safe and effective in HIV, and it's reducing plasma interleukin levels in COVID-19. That's an expensive agent, obviously, as a monoclonal, but you wonder about whether or not, in certain circumstances, a protocol involving monoclonal antibodies and some of these other agents for support might emerge as a generalized anti-long COVID therapy. It's a very exciting time because it is uh, terrible to think of something like this being permanent and dropping people into that chronic fatigue basket that so many individuals get trapped in. Sybil in Soquel writes, sensory neural toothpaste and fluoride. A while ago, I went to my functional medicine dentist. He has always recommended using fluoride-free toothpaste and brushing the gum line um, with, I assume we should use food-grade hydrogen peroxide and baking soda. Then this dentist went out of my insurance networks, and I changed to a dentist who strongly recommends using fluoride toothpaste and Sensodyne for sensitive teeth. When I looked up the ingredients of Sensodyne, I shy away from using the product. What is your opinion? Thank you so much. Well, Sybil, I can generally be relied upon to have an opinion, and in this this case is no exception. I had a sensitive teeth issue some years ago, and I happened to be uh, traveling in France, probably crocked a few too many croque-messieurs or something. But anyway, I had some microfractures in my front teeth, and I was not enjoying that uh, temperature sensitivity. Well, I went to a French pharmacy and discovered that the best remineralizing toothpaste that I have been able to find uses L-arginine, which is a amino acid, as its active ingredient. I have no idea what the mechanism is. I suspect it has to do with L-arginine's effect on increasing the amounts of nitric oxide in tissue because nitric oxide is a local neurotransmitter and is a vasodilator. So maybe what it's doing is feeding remineralization by changing the component of saliva. I'm really not sure. But having tried these other agents that are available in the United States. I have gotten into the habit of buying the toothpaste through the internet, which it is available. The name is L L Max, E-L-M-A-X. Uh, you want the professional sensitive tooth. Uh, and if you have any trouble finding it, send me another email and we will shoot you a link 
because uh, I think it's the best way to go. I don't think the products that are available here uh, are good, and I, too, don't like all of the ingredients that I see in that particular product that you mentioned. Uh, We're going now to our next email, and this one came from Richard in Oak Park, Illinois. Senolytic drugs or other ways to kill senescent cells. Dear Dr. Dong, I often watch lectures at the Royal Institute and heard one about aging and killing senescent cells and reversing aging. The speaker was Andrew Steele, and here's a link. Not trying to promote anything, I am trying to gain an understanding and learn what you think might be real. He did repeat some positive stuff about metformin, which I think you also confirmed previously. Thanks for an entertaining education, Richard K. Well, thank you, Richard, for the email. I did take a look at, uh, unfortunately, your link did not attach to the email that you sent, but I was able to find Andrew Steele, and he has quite a substantial presence on the Internet, uh, various interviews and YouTubes and such, so anyone who wants to follow that up is welcome to. Uh, He primarily is focusing on uh, senescent cells, and I saw a link to an article, which I primarily pulled because I thought he was going to be one of the authors, but it is associated with him somehow. Presumably, he was quoting it in that talk. So let's talk, first of all, about this concept of the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. First, let's talk about a genotype, okay? A genotype is what the genes say. A phenotype is what you see or can measure how those genes are manifesting or not manifesting. So, for example, we all contain the genes for inflammation, but we aren't necessarily firing off all those genes and making a lot of inflammatory chemicals in our body. That would be an inflammatory phenotype, and we might be manifesting an uninflamed phenotype. So the senescence-associated secretary phenotype is a series of compounds. Uh, I'm going to list some of them. Uh, Transforming growth uh, factor is uh, one of them. Uh, And they talk about uh, tumor necrosis factor, alpha, interleukin-6, chemokine CC, with chemokine CXC, uh, ligand, something called profibrotic transforming growth factor, beta. These are all part of a activation of a mechanism within cells called NF-kappa-B. And this is a very important pro-inflammatory mechanism that receptors on the surface of the cell transmit information to the nucleus via this nf Kappa B, uh, and it activates these this whole cassette of genes, including the genes for prostaglandins, the inflammatory compounds that are blocked with ibuprofen. So it's sort of like go to chapter inflammation and follow these recipes to the DNA, and then the DNA does exactly that, and suddenly out in the cell, you're making the these compounds, reading the RNA and making these compounds and releasing them into the system. And there's a pattern of senescence. The research article that I'm going to be talking about for just a moment uh, came out in Science Translational Medicine, uh, 
about a year ago. And in this study, they were looking at kidney cells because the way that kidneys get old is primarily they first lose the ability to recover from injury. Does that sound familiar? Taking longer to heal when you cut yourself or when you twist something? What they saw was that cells that were expressing this particular secretory phenotype created functional loss. They thought that they were creating fibrosis, and so they tested this hypothesis to see whether they could change the fibrosis. In other words, reduce the senescence in the cells by inhibiting the senescent cells. And they used a drug that's supposed to be, well, it's one of these experimental drugs that's been developed to treat lymphoma called ABT263. And what they found was that they got back a different phenotype in the kidney cells. So the stem cells, instead of producing senescent cells that were expressing these proteins, which are pro-inflammatory, these compounds, I should say, which are pro-inflammatory, went to the regenerative phenotype. And this raises all kinds of issues. I'm sure you recall the, uh, the blood transfusion idea that if you do a blood transfusion from a young animal to an old animal, you get a rejuvenating effect. And probably what you're doing also is changing or reducing the percentage of this secretory phenotype that's pro-inflammatory and pro-fibrotic. So you're going to get better healing after just giving these factors into the bloodstream. But what if we could find a way to actually reverse the programming in the senescent cells? It made me kind of think about aging in general and some of the other interesting anti-aging entities that have been elaborated. Calorie restriction, for example, in almost all mammals will expand lifespan by like 30%. Is that because we're adding something with calorie restriction or taking something away? Well, you might think it's just that food itself is inflammatory, and if you reduce the amount of inflammation by 30%, you should get an improvement. But also, calorie restriction and fasting increase two other things which are important to aging. One of them is cleaning up and The other is another gene cassette called SIRT1, and the SIRT, S-I-R-T-1 gene cassette, that particular gene, and others, you've probably not heard of that, but you have heard of resveratrol, highly promoted as anti-aging in the alternative world, and thought to be you know, found in high levels in red wine and certain other plants and vegetables. So the idea is, well, red wine keeps you young, but, and that's why we should drink some. doesn't turn out to be true. A little bit goes a long way when you start using red wine because of alcohol. But I've seen resveratrol supplements to up to a 1,000 milligram doses, which is huge. I mean, we're talking a barrel of red wine worth of resveratrol in that pill. And there is some data that it takes about 50 grams if you scale up from the mice to a human. So that's a that's a fair amount of resveratrol to flip that particular switch. Still, we do see a variation. SIRT1, among other things, 
increases telomere lengths, telomeres being those little caps on the ends of our chromosomes that get eroded away and probably contribute to the higher mutation rate as we age. So maybe there's some gene stabilization going on there. I also mentioned that fasting helps with cleanup. And we now understand that throughout the day and as our bodies make new cells, we leave a lot of trash lying around, misfolded proteins, broken enzymes, things like that. If we're constantly feeding the body, it doesn't bother to look for food. On the other hand, if you starve the body and drop it into ketosis, something interesting happens and the cells start firing up the scavengers, the recycling trucks, and picking up those misfolded proteins and the other cellular debris that's lying around, kind of gumming up the road, so to speak, and breaking them down in something called the lysosomal system, which is kind of a portable stomach that many cells carry around that's full of acid, and it breaks down these things into their component parts and allows them to be recycled. So, You're firing up the recycling plant. You're changing levels of CERT1, possibly lengthening your telomeres. And all this happens by just fasting and reducing the total number of calories that you consume. Misfolded proteins? Well, you know, think Alzheimer's, think Parkinson's disease. All of this senescent stuff is tied together in a great web And I think there's multiple places where standing at the outside of what we know, we can start taking positive steps short of using a beta cell lymphoma drug. I haven't read Mr. Steele's book. I do understand that it's out there, and that probably explains his rather broad presence on the Internet. I'm not saying he doesn't have something really useful to say. I just haven't had an opportunity to read his book and... Yeah, I really prefer reading to watching YouTube videos. Sorry, personal preference. Time for some feel-good stories now in the last 15 minutes of the uh, show. I've got at least a couple of of these for you, not to mention things that you can action, uh, put into action right now. This study out of England looked at cortisol levels in saliva of children who were exposed to dogs, basically Uh, They had children in the UK, they were put into a dog group, a relaxation group, and a control group. In the dog group, the participants interacted for 20 minutes a day with a trained dog and handler twice a week for four weeks. Uh, The meditation group got a 20-minute relaxation session. Then they looked at children in both regular and special needs school, and The cortisol levels in the people who participated in the dogs were very low immediately after each dog session. The dogs lowered stress on a real-time basis, and short-term contact with them actually led to lower stress levels uh, at the baseline before the dog interventions towards the end of the trial. So you saw real persistent improvement in that, which is just extremely exciting. We've gotten a call from Nicole, so I'm going to see if I can get her online too. Hello, Nicole, are you on there? Hi. Yes. Hi. Dr. I have a question for you. Um, thank you for taking my call, first of all. Um, I found a, a tick at the nape of my six-year-old daughter's neck today, and she said that it had been in there for a few days. 
I pulled it out. It's in a Ziploc bag. I'm curious, um, what would you do at this point? Who would you send it to to have tested and, and what would you look out for? Okay, so the state lab will test the tick for Lyme disease. Where was your daughter playing? Do you have any idea where she might have picked up the tick? Possibly Bonnie Dune, but we also just got back from Nevada City, so potentially up there too. Okay, and how big is the tick? Uh, we're you know the the dog ticks are quite fairly large, so we're looking for something that's smaller than a grain of way smaller than a grain of rice. I believe it's a dog tick because it's black and brown. All right. And it's bigger than a grain of rice? Yes. Okay. So that kind of tick that your main, your main concern is just going to be like you would for a cut, you know, some sort of staph infection or strep infection on the skin. So now that you've gotten it off, just applying a nice thick layer of antibacterial cream and putting a Band-Aid okay. over there to increase the absorption is really all you need to do, and then check that once a day. And if you see signs of spreading redness or something that looks like a boil, uh, you're obviously going to have to follow up. You could send it off to the health department who will ship it to the lab in the state. I don't remember uh, the address for them, but there is there is a lab, and they, what they are doing is surveillance. And the first thing they do is they say, okay, is this a tick that can carry Lyme, Babesiosis, or Lichio, uh, Anaplasma, all the nasty tick diseases? Or yeah. is this a just plain old dog tick? And, and then they'll throw that one away. So if you're already sure it's a dog tick, you don't need to do this. If it's a teeny I'm tiny sure, tick. But, um, yeah. Okay. If and then will they report one. back to me? If I send it in, will they report back to me? They will. They, they will. Okay. All right. So Excellent. there okay. you go. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Bye. And we're going to go to talking about how you can improve the benefit of your walks using Nordic walking. I've seen a few people doing Nordic walking around, uh, and that's defined as walking with the two poles. So as you walk, you plant the poles, boom, 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 uh, and you're using your upper body. That turns out to make a big difference in terms of rehabbing heart patients. This study was just published in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology, and they compared Nordic walking to bicycling, walking on a treadmill. Uh, They also uh, looked at uh, high-intensity interval training, but obviously if you're coming off of a heart attack, you're not... Uh, or a bypass, you're not going to be doing unsupervised exercise. This Nordic idea, using your upper body and those poles, really enhances the cardiac benefit. And one of the interesting tidbits, by the way, about this is that conductors, people who are professional orchestral conductors, have one of the lowest heart attack hit rates of any profession. And many researchers think that's because they spend many hours a day arm-waving. And arm-waving is very, very good for your heart. It sends increased blood flow and it cleans out the arteries. So when they looked at the Nordic walking compared with interval training and and moderate to vigorous continuous training, they found that the improvement in functional capacity was greatest for the people who were walking, uh, the high-intensity interval training came in uh, about six points less, so 19% for the Nordic walking in terms of their improvement over 12 weeks in objective scores of fitness, whereas 13 and 12% for the interval training and the, in, and the continuous training. 
So you could increase almost by 50% the benefit that you're getting by walking, by getting yourself a couple of poles and planting those in the ground as you walk along. You can be humming, climb every mountain to yourself quietly as you do it. And I'm sure that will even add more to your benefit. And what about exercise? Well, if you work out regularly, but you're still not feeling like you're getting anywhere, it could be partly your genes. British researchers recently published a review of 24 previous studies. They looked at more than 3,000 people, and they grouped them into genotypes, remember, phenotype, genotype, based on their DNA, and they were looking at things like uh, their collagen, what kind of collagen SNPs they had, and what kind of nitrous oxide SNPs they had that influences blood flow to the muscles. They trained them in muscle strength, cardiovascular fitness, and power exercises, gave them all the same exercises. Then they checked them a couple of weeks later, and they were very surprised to see that some genotypes showed much greater improvements than others. So then they went down and dug into the genes, and they found that for muscle strength, 72% of the differences in people were due to genes. 44% of cardiovascular fitness, and 10% of anaerobic power. So weightlifting wasn't really genetically affected. Only 13 genes were responsible for most of that variation. This could be extremely important, I think, when you're trying to decide which sport to do, or if you're in rehab, it might be something we would, as doctors, look at to prescribe a longer duration of rehab for people that we see are going to have genetically a slower rate of improvement. And that might make a substantial difference in the success rate of the program. So more good news. Beer is good for the microbiome. Beer in moderation has some benefit. Now, they've been looking at a study where they had looked at beer that was alcohol-free, I guess, near beer, I think it's called. And this study had already been published that showed that if people consumed a non-alcoholic lager beer for 30 days, they increased their gut microbiome diversity, which we consider to be a marker in health. And then the question arose in this study because the people who got the alcoholic beer didn't seem to get the same benefit. So Whoever did this study, clearly a beer lover, decided to do a double-blind study. Uh, They gave them 11 fluid ounces a day at dinner for four weeks of either alcoholic or non-alcoholic beer, and they measured their serum markers for heart health and cholesterol and liver health, and none of those things changed, but their microbiomes changed, and they had higher levels of fecal alkaline phosphatase, which is an indicator of Uh, having good bacteria and a healthy intestinal lining. So all good things. Consuming one bottle of beer with or without alcohol probably improves your microbiome enough to offset whatever small adverse effects. But again, moderation must be stressed, right? Super important that you not overdote this. So staying on good news 
a new treatment for prostate cancer with fewer side effects. I know there's some probably a few ears in the audience will perk up to that. This treatment is called partial gland ablation, and it's being done with high-intensity focused ultrasound. Uh, it's primarily being initiated at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and they're doing a focal therapy with ultrasound being guided by MRI. There are a lot of people who have intermediate cancer. They don't have low risk where we're going to do watchful waiting if they're over 70. They don't have high risk where no one debates that the prostate has to come out, you know, come what may. But many intermediate risk cancer patients are left on the horns of a dilemma. Do possibly excessive treatment or do they forego a treatment that could prove to be life-saving? So you can think of local therapy as kind of a male lumpectomy. Back 30 years ago, when a woman got breast cancer, we took off her breast. It took us 15, 20 years to test the idea that, well, if we just take out the cancer and a little bit of tissue around it and throw some radiation on there to get rid of any precancers, we get a good result. And indeed, you do get a good result. So this is a male lumpectomy, but of course, what the prostate's deep in the body, not superficial like the breast, so it's much harder to do a partial prostate removal. What this study does is in cancers that are just confined to the prostate gland, they put them under anesthesia, they put them in an MRI machine that covers just the lower half of the body, they take an image of the prostate and outline the treatment area, and then they focus ultrasound waves at the area, and they come from different directions. So where they cross, the amount of mechanical injury is very high, and the tissue heats up to about 158 degrees Fahrenheit, which cooks the cancer cells. In the imaging, you can read the temperature off the MRI, so you know that you've gotten it hot enough, just like a meat thermometer in your pork roast, and you know you've gotten it hot enough, and you also don't create any wounds. You don't mess with the urethra. You don't mess with the nerves. You're just getting the killing level of energy to the place that you want to kill. And this is just gotten approval as of December 2021. It's called Exablate. And this is going to be going to clinical trials, looking for that coming to our community or a community nearby in the not-too-distant future. So ending on quite some good news, I think. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.